All right, Crude Conversations, episode 20. We made it. In this episode, we talk to Alaskan author Jared Mayer. We talk about comics and their function as a mode of storytelling. We also talk about his relationship with his stepdad, Terry Stallman, who owned the Showboat Strip Club here in Anchorage. This was actually one of the first episodes Dustin and I recorded as co-hosts. We were both pretty green when it came to working together as hosts, but after listening to it, after like going back through it, um, I realized how, like, how good it turned out. I mean, this was, this was recorded um, last summer, so... Here we are, I mean, not quite a year ago, but uh, but pretty close. We recorded it in my extra bedroom at my house um, with, a, uh, with a USB mic that was just hooked to my computer. And at that point, we had like no idea about audio. I mean, like to the point where, where it's gotten right now, you know, here at episode 20, you know, where, where we have learned so much and we've, we've grown as interviewers, as, as hosts and as co-hosts, we've come so far from this podcast. Um, but also the reason that it has taken us so long to put it out is because we needed to, to learn how to use the program better audition, the program that we use to edit our, our podcasts or to be able to, you know, put this out there into the world and make it, make it sound good, you know? make it sound like we're right in your freaking ears. So in every episode, we give a shout out to our company men. So shout out to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, and our brand new company man, my sister-in-law, Crystal Liska. Stoked to have you on board, Crystal. If you enjoy Crude Conversations, give us a review on iTunes and check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash crude magazine that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n patreon.com slash crude magazine on there you can pick from a number of tiers in whatever way you are able to support we have an option so yeah i I was excited to sit down with jared because he's easily my my favorite fiction writer out of alaska um he he puts together these these long um Facebook posts that that are sometimes personal, sometimes little like quippy thoughts, other times like full chapters from his upcoming books. So that's kind of how I was introduced to him as a as an author and as a writer. And I also worked with him a little bit or he was he was writing for Susie Buchanan at the Anchorage Press while I was simultaneously a feature writer for the Anchorage Press during Susie Buchanan's tenure there. That was my intro to him as a journalist uh, rather than a a fiction writer, um, which I know him now to be. So anyway, let's get into this. Here's Jared. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. I mean, to be fair, I went and saw Ozfest in like '06, and I would have watched Black Sabbath even if Ozzy Osbourne was like Ozzy from the Osbournes. Oh, like, yeah. like, even if he was just fucking drugged the shit out on stage, I probably would have enjoyed that show. It was the complete opposite, yeah, yeah. by the way. He was like up and down that thing, dunking his head in water buckets, and like it was the most manic I've ever seen. But I, I mean, like. I get the feeling like if you just like someone enough, you would go and watch them anyway, even if they're like putting 50% into it. That whatever. was the whole thing with like Bob Dylan. Like he kept touring and everyone was like, dude, it's so bad. He just <laughs> can barely show him, but he's such a legend that you yeah, yeah. have to go watch it. Certain things happen when you stop taking and doing drugs and substance, right? Like certain neural pathways are not connecting and what's that? Stephen King. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have on writing out there. Okay, yeah. yeah. That was my immediate thought because, like, he wrote Cujo. He doesn't remember writing. He doesn't remember it at all. He's like, I wish I remembered it. He's like, I love the book. (laughs) That was was my first thought. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Which is weird because a lot of... Side note, I'm sorry, real quick. But everyone talks about how Cujo is, like, so good. And it's one of my least favorite... I mean, it has great moments, but that's... that's Every Stephen thing has great moments, but... Yeah, yeah. But he's got, like, you know, there's certain great books. Not everyone is It or The Stand. Right. Okay, so what 
What are your comics today? Uh, what came out today? And actually, um, can, can you explain uh, for the, yeah, the people that no, don't know? Yeah, you don't know? Oh, okay. I don't know actually too much. Really. So, okay, so you have you have a ton of comic companies, for one. Uh, the big two are Marvel and DC. Marvel is Spider-Man. Well, whoever doesn't know who Marvel is, but it's Spider-Man, Thor, Hulk, Captain America, Iron Man. I, I don't. And people are like, what? Like, everyone I know is into the all. The only reason that's surprising to me is because consistently those movies are grossing, like, near to or over a billion dollars yeah. now. Every single one. And I, I've, been a, yeah. I've been a comic book fan since I was four years old. And so, growing up, like, my one of my first jobs was at a comic book shop for, like, five, six years. I've always been into comics. So, I would like these obscure comic characters, like the Guardians of the Galaxy, and be like, oh, man... This is what my idea for a movie trilogy would be, but that's never going to fucking happen. And now Guardians of the Galaxy are, is like one of the fan favorites of people that like they're spending a billion dollars going to see movies, <clears throat> which is crazy to me. These are now household names, which is weird. Um, that's good. Even though I'm a little bitter because I used to get beat up in high school for it. But uh, so well, these, you should feel vindicated. A little bit. But I mean, like, but then they're like, oh, I'm so nerdy. I like Marvel. Con. I was like, no, now now you're just a pop culture enthusiast like i don't think you get to call yourself a nerd unless you get bullied over what you like so, like yeah yeah it's a, like you know, a niche interest does that bother you the fact that like you were into it before it got cool and now it's like are these people really as into it as i am do they appreciate it in the same way i yeah, did they get well, no. for it you know what it doesn't it doesn't really because um because i think the comic books inherently as a storytelling device are important i think that I, like i'm like call myself like a like a story guy or the story man because i think that stories are inherently the most important thing to to humans to society you can go from fiction you know which is uh, largely escapism uh, comic books which started off like kind of you would get um originally it was like mostly super heroics and stuff like that which is uh, allows you to see like the embodiment of the perfection of the human form of the human experience but lately now and i'll get to that um, but then like, uh, like movies is just art on screen or whatever, but they tell, they have a narrative. But if you go further back than that, you get to nonfiction, you get to, um, personal experiences that, um, like expose both the best and darkest parts of human life and it allows people to relate to experiences that maybe they felt that they were alone in or be exposed to experiences that they'd never realized existed. Then you go further back than that, then it's history and it's like history and religion and all these things are just composed of a bunch of stories that allow to like you know, form moral compasses and allow to like, uh, see the mistakes and the accomplishments of the past and like the, um, you know, the growth of all this stuff. So you go as far back as cave paintings, all cave paintings were, I mean, yeah, of course it's artistic expression, but it's also a story just written images on a wall. So I think that like intrinsically stories are important and therefore because comic books are essentially stories, they're also important. So I'm not upset because I think that when people are seeing, um, comic books on the screen you know millions of people that do not read comic books are now being exposed to comic book characters that have been around for 50 60 70 80 years and so now they're going and some of them not all of them but some of them are going to want to expand that knowledge they're like i really like this character let me see their origin so they go on to comic books it exposes them to a different type of medium both narratively and artistically that um hopefully you know allows them to feel something that they didn't feel before or see something that didn't so see talking before. about comic books as a medium and like a unique way that they can present something to a, to a reader how would you explain that like what what separates a comic book as a medium of telling a story versus you know versus the big screen versus well, you know well, what about uh like mouse and was it uh persepolis Persepolis, yeah. yeah, yeah Persepolis, like, I think. Persepolis, yeah, yeah. Persepolis. Like, those are... Is that the Iranian? Mouse is, Mouse is basically yeah. Nazi Germany, but yeah, with yeah. mice and cats. So, like, there's, there's a... There's a, there's a um, I, I don't think that movies... I don't think that movies are removed of all nuance. I think that there are a lot of movies that have multiple layers, you know, that are open to dissection. I, th I think that, you know, there's evidence of that in universities that teach certain movies in their classes. I used to never think that I could write a book because I thought it was just too much work. Because you have to like build up images of a location and of a personality of internal conflicts and external conflict and relationships and depths and um, flaws and all this stuff to try to make it realistic and try to build a, a, a scene. To take a real person um, and translate it to a page, that sort of thing. And comics are kind of somewhere in the middle. Uh, you have like the narrative and you have like the images of like say a movie, but the artistry of it allows you to pack a lot more details into it. The perfect example is Alan Moore's Watchmen. It's quoted a lot. There's a reason why it's on like Time's uh, top 100 novels of the uh, last 
hundred years, despite being a, a graphic novel. And it's because um, Dave, <clears throat> Dave Gibbons, Dave Simmons, Dave Gibbons, his art packs so many little details in there. And Alan Moore's writing packs so many like obscure references to like uh, ancient fables and uh, folk tales and um, classic myths and stories, H.G. Uh, Wells and all that sort of stuff. And so what it does is like if someone doesn't have, if they don't want to take the time to read a book, then they can get the narrative parts of it really easily with a lot of like the bombastic colors and everything of the um, of the art and everything. Also, budget constraints aren't a thing with, with comic books. You can have big explosions and everything without having to worry about like a CGI budget because it's all right oh, there on the page. Versus a movie. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then like versus a comic book versus a book is like as the writer, it, it's like you can't just quickly draw out that scene. You have to figure out how can I use words to describe this beautiful, beautiful location that is like interacting with these characters and is a part of their development, say, you know, that's like, scenes can be very important, right? The location, the locale. About 10, 15 years ago, Marvel Comics ran a, um, ran an experiment called Nuff Said. Um, Nuff Said is like, it was an old Stan Lee kind of thing. And it's like, this is the thing, Nuff Said. And there was an argument about who was more important to comic books, writers or artists. And so they released every, uh, and I'll explain like how the comics get released in a second, but every title that they had on the market for that month was devoid of dialogue and they had to tell a story entirely through the art and so it's like a visual storytelling thing and that had been done once before many years with gi joe the famous i think it's like issue number 21 of uh, larry Hammond's original run where it was an entirely they call it the silent issue and yeah, it's so like it's like a silent film for comic books right so it's like so the um the, the writer obviously plots it out you know, he, he plots out the panels and everything like that, but it's up to the artist to actually take what the writer has in mind and then bring it to life on screen. So it's a, it's a different type of narrative storytelling, and a lot of times it allows a lot more creativity. How, how did it do? Oh, it was great. I mean, it was a success. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, everyone was just astonished at what you could do with just art. It's a fascinating experience. I mean, like, we were doing that in the 20s, in the 30s with silent films, you know, you'd have your occasional title screen or whatever, but the rest of it was just through performance. But then yeah, you can yeah. take a look at, like, even even paintings back in, like, the 1500s, and you'd mm-hmm. have, like, just a scene of something. You know, I was just thinking about that the other day. I went, when I was in Paris, I went to the Louvre and saw all the, you know, there's just so many of those giant old paintings. Because I'm not a huge art enthusiast. So I spent, you know, maybe two minutes. It was, like, hard for me to spend more than two minutes looking at each one. But I thought back to when these things came out. And they would probably stare at them forever and like really try and figure out what was the story behind it, you know. And I, I actually kind of did that like as a kid at my grandma's house. She had like paintings of like old like Western stuff on a lake, you know, and there's like a scene going on. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was just so bored. I'd like stare at it and I'd create characters out of the people and or, like, what do you think they're doing? And Can I self-promote for a second? Yeah, yeah Okay. So just because that concept was something that had occurred to me when I was writing my last book which is titled Reed in Denver. And uh, the artist, the art, the artist character, the Gabby in that book, um, she has uh, the, when, when she and Auburn first meet, she takes her on a, a tour of this uh, art gallery that he doesn't realize is hers at first. Like those, these are her pieces. So Auburn is the guy. He sees this gallery that's open and Gabby sees him kind of pussyfooting on the sidewalk and offers to take on a guy on a guided tour through the gallery and he doesn't realize that these are her pieces as he's going through there and like kind of critiquing them or whatever. And he sees that next to each of the things is just a price, but no like uh, no other details about the piece, no title. And um, later on, he he asked her like, you know, why is there no title? And her whole thing is because if there's a title for the piece, it can inform the opinion of what's going on in the piece. And then if there's not, then then whatever that person that sees that piece sees that they, they get their own interpretation out of it they get their own value out of it and like different people can perceive different things and i took that a step further like that was early on that i kind of put that concept in there because i believe that i think it's really cool that like each person can see the same piece and get something completely different out of it different emotionally out of it but uh, i took that a little bit further as i was near the near the end of the book i was in the shower one day and um i was thinking about like the last chapter i wasn't quite at the last chapter i was thinking about it and i was like if this were ever to get adapted into a movie uh knock on wood um <laughs> If this were to get adapted into a movie, what what songs would play over this last chapter? And then I was like thinking about that and I had a couple in mind. And then I was like, well, then what songs would play over the other chapters? And my friend um, and DJ Grant Elliott helped 
DJ Gray? DJ Gray. Yeah, DJ yeah. Gray, yeah. And over the course of like a week or two, we composed a uh, soundtrack for the book that I put together at the very front. It's That's a, so awesome. It's a track list of the book. And I also created a Spotify playlist, but you might listen to them like as you're reading, you might read the chapter and then listen to the songs. You might read the book without the songs and then listen to it with the songs. And they might trigger completely different memories and experiences. You might attribute them to different scenes, but the idea was to give each reader a completely unique personal experience while reading the book with sort of a music accompaniment and that just take it to a whole nother layer. I think that's really cool, man. I actually have that book on my bookshelf. Just completely unrelated. I'm not a super political guy, but I mean, just like one of the things that's really been bothering me lately is like, it's just been happening repeatedly for day after day after day is that people seem to forget that the, the guy that's leading the investigation, the special investigation is, is a Republican. Yeah. Robert Robert Mueller is a Republican. So was Comey. Yeah. Yeah. So was Comey. And so was Rosenstein, Rosenstein, who is like in charge because Jeff Sessions recused himself. So so Rosenstein is like the next, you know, the deputy um, attorney general. He was appointed by Trump, you know? And so this is the thing is like, he's got this investigation. All he can do is to these 30% of Americans who believe anything he says he can just say whatever in turn, and that's his thing, is to discredit it. Here, here's, it's, okay, oh, it's so this is going to sound really fucking hypocritical, really hypocritical, because everyone's like, oh, I just like that Trump says it, says it how it is, or whatever, but I really do wish that more politicians would have some fucking balls. Yes. Yeah. Every time they're fucking overhead on a mic saying, that guy's a fucking idiot, or that opinion is, is stupid, or whatever, and then they're like, oh, well, what do you say about this? Like, well, I, you know, I just, it was taken out, I didn't mean it, it was disrespectful, and I was like, no, when people are acting fucking stupid, you call them like they're fucking stupid. And here's the thing, is like, the president's been doing that for ages, with no proof. And no statistics to back it up. He just makes up statistics oh, that fact checks constantly do it up. If he's just yeah. going to do it with no statistics, and you've got the statistics to back it up, then just fucking do it. Yeah. Just call him a fucking asshole to their face. Like, just do it. What's, well, what are you going to well, lose? Your well, constituents? Who the well, fuck cares? Almost. Have some goddamn integrity. <laughs> just fucking call him a bitch. <laughs> Pisses me off so much. Like, uh, 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 like Jesus, Ted Cruz? I don't even like Ted Cruz. The shit that Donald Trump said to Ted Cruz on the campaign trail, he just Your said it to his face candy. repeatedly. Your, your wife is ugly. That's he, what he said about he, Ted Cruz. He said it oh, repeatedly to his yeah, face. Yeah. He said it to John McCain to his face. He said it to all these people to his face. And because he was part of the party, they're like, well, no, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I was really upset about that, but I'm just going to throw my support. At- fuck that. You're going to throw like shade on my honor or my integrity or my family. No, fuck you. I'm going to throw you under the bus it, every chance I get. It, fuck yeah, that. Like, yeah, I'm not going to support your terrible. agenda. And, like, and that's the problem is like Donald Trump has started playing by his own rules. Everyone else is still trying to play by the old rules. They're like refusing to like kind of be brash, say, you know, be politically incorrect to, you know, to call people out. You know, they're all playing by the old rules. But here, here's what's not working. Here's what's crazy too. So now there's this like upswing of fucking like blatant open racism and anti-Semitism and like and homophobia and all this stuff because that's like kind of the thing. It's just like, no, we're a pro-life, uh, pro-straight, fuck, pro-Christian like government now, despite the fact that the constitution says we shouldn't really be any of that. So now like all these people are coming out and they're just like, well, black people are shit and uh, Jews are destroying the economy. And they're like, well, no, you're a piece of shit. And they're like, I can't believe they call me a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, how dare they insult me and my character. And it's like, no, you, you can't have it both ways. Like, you don't get your free speech and I don't get my free speech. If you're a hateful bigot, I'm going to call you on your hateful bigotry and I'm going to make you lose your job because everyone knows that really being a bigot is being a piece of shit. You don't get to be upset about that. You get to have it both ways. Like, you, fuck you. you know, get with the times. 2018, you cunt. Everyone's equal. You know what's, what's crazy to me is, uh, so have, have you heard, have you heard, uh, <laughs> So Michael Barbaro is the uh, he's the host of the Daily the the New York Times podcast, which is like absolutely like phenomenal. Is it good? It's really it, good. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, it's fake every... news because it's New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's award winning fake news. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fact checked, award winning fake news. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, for for a while, he did this uh, other podcast. Michael Barbaro did. Uh, it's called New Washington, and he interviewed these kind of like new figures. In Washington, and this this one episode is about Sean Hannity. In the interview he's doing with Sean Hannity, Sean Hannity's explaining, you know, he has 30-some-odd people on his staff, right? And how he goes about 
his normal day is wakes up, reads the news, and if he personally finds something, Sean Hannity finds something, he calls one of his staff writers and says, hey, I want you to include this. Meanwhile, what his staff writers are doing, they are picking through liberal news, uh, this is what they say, liberal news, and finding the liberal talking points, the sound bites that could be in favor of conservatism, right? Yeah, totally. So I, I guess what was so fucking phenomenal about it to me was that here we have Sean Hannity out of the, the horse's mouth telling you, telling, telling you know, a journalist... This is how we go about making my show, the show that you watch, the show that you potentially regurgitate to your friends, to your family, to to people that have differing opinions. Mm -hmm. If I personally heard that about some of the news that I read, I'd be like, that is manufactured. I am not going to fucking read that or watch that. This is a little dated like seven years dated, but I started watching uh, um, last night. I was I was up late and I started binge watching the Green Room with Paul Provenza. Are you familiar with that? Mm, I don't think so. No. Okay, so I guess it's, there's only like 14 episodes of it. They're all on YouTube, um, and as Paul Provenza is a comedy or a comedian, and so each episode just takes a different selection of three to four comedians, and they just have like a roundtable for like 30 minutes or whatever, and it's it's great. I mean, you get everybody from like uh, like. Uh, Andy Dick to like Doug Stanhope to like Jim Jeffries to like uh, um, they had some really like a Bill like Bur- Bill Burr's on there yeah so each episode is great because and some of them are a little bit more annoying depending on who's there like who tries to command the screen but anyway uh, one of the early episodes in like the first season they cut to do you remember when uh, John Stewart tore apart. Was it Hannity and Combs on Crossfire? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They they canceled the show. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 2011, 2012, in one of these early episodes, during one of these green room things, Paul Provenza cuts to this uh, younger comedian, and I, God, I wish I remember his name. I don't remember his name. He's sitting in the crowd, because it's most of the, the crowd is mostly composed of comedians and actors and stuff that are just, like, sitting on this round table. And so, um, he's like, yeah, so he went on Fox News and stirred up a hornet's nest, and this is what happened. And it was, like, it was uh, the announcer, and then, like, him, and then someone else in the field, and they're talking, and then it cuts to, like, him, and he's just, he basically just did the John Stewart thing. He's just like, what are you, this is the propaganda machine. He's like, go home, care about your family. He's like, what are you doing? You're just, like, stirring up hate, you're mixing the yeah. issues, everything like that. They cut his mic. Off. They cut his mic, and I was just, like, I was thinking, um... But the thing that got me was they went directly from that, like when he's talking about like like oh he said like a hundred people died in, in Iran yesterday or uh, like a, or Israel yesterday or something like that. He's like, why aren't you talking about that? Because you're talking about all these talking points, you're talking about this, like you're, you're just hurting America. And they cut his mic, and then they went to talk about Captain Kirk in Star Trek. Yeah, like that was that just blew my mind. It, it was it was crazy so, to me. If we want change, it's going to be up to us. You know what I mean? It's like we have to find out how to decipher between because there's there's so much media and there's so much there and you can actually go to what you want to hear. You know, the confirmation bias, right? If you're a liberal, it's like what? MSNBC, Huffington Post. If you're a conservative, it's uh, what's it? The uh, Fox News and Breitbart. Ex- exactly. Right. So, so, so there needs to be part of your civic education now as, as kids. Like how do we teach these people to decipher through all the fucking bullshit and to appreciate news for something that's a public Good. That's exactly what I've been saying for the longest time is is the metric for intelligence for the longest time has been literacy. So as we look at, at humanity as a whole, we are the most intelligent based on that metric of literacy, right, mm-hmm. than we ever have been. The next step that, that you're talking about that, that I think that that a lot of people talk about is critical thinking. So so once we can once we can see that headline, right? click on it and read the entire article and then digest it for ourselves as opposed to maybe reading a headline and then turning on Sean Hannity sure. and then hear him talk about that that because that's meta journalism, um, right? Yeah. That's journalism about journalism. Right. That's not original journalism. Right. And you're not reading the original piece. Right. And then digesting that and then putting it back out into the world with your own opinions and everything else stamped on top of it. So I'm gonna throw a quick promo out. He's not paying me. I just like this I read this book last year and it ruined my life in a good way. Uh, awesome. the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari is a a very in-depth... I mean, he's like an anthropologist and he's like a historian, like an archaeologist and all this stuff. And he has studied the history of 
human humankind since the development of homo the uh, evolution of Homo sapiens from what came before to modern day through agriculture and the development of religion, economy, and everything like that, and politics up to um, regular day. And it's very, very deep, and it's very, very educational. And once you start realizing, like you know, how deep man instituted concepts are versus like what was the natural order was it gets a little so uh, this is called existential statements. this got this this podcast got like really political um <laughs> we were on comic books uh <clears throat> there's another thing though that i think that um that isn't talked about enough is that like and i don't think it's focused on enough is that in this war between like the administration and free media and right-wing media and left-wing media is that pe- people forget that like we should just fact check shit like that should be a focus is like everyone just takes articles at face value there's like politifact there's like there's all these things that are like that are bipartisan resources that are available that will parse but they're seen as partisan now. that's the thing I know. no that's i know and that and that is a problem that is a problem media matters right is like a liberal hit but i mean if you thing. yeah but if you look at it this way without even mentioning it it's partisan anyway and then you're just like, okay, so I understand that you have a partisan bias. You need to check out the site that is bipartisan, that parses the facts, that has it statistically backed up to do some research. And then even if it's not something you agree with, at least you have like a better understanding with resource, you know, resources and, and facts behind it. And then you can kind of pick and choose where it is. And so, of course, some people are going to be like, well, no, that's still partisan. Or they're going to be like, oh, no, it's fake news. I mean, you can't just say that you're either educated or not. You have to continue trying to educate people. Exactly. You have to continue trying to, like, t- take away the veil mm-hmm. and, like, or, or open the curtains. And not everyone's going to get there. Our ignorance isn't going to get fucking removed right away. But, I mean, like, like there needs to be... I don't know, a third party that's focusing on like, hey, just just fucking focus on this. What also is important to think about is that not everybody has that opinion. Not everybody. I've met people, numerous people in my life that um, I'm done learning. I don't want to learn anymore. And I think that, that a lot of times it is easier to just disagree and completely throw that opinion out the window than to consider it because shit's complicated. And what humans have done is categorized it. And if it doesn't fit within at least our, say, partisan for this this, uh, this sure. uh, conversation, uh, it doesn't fit within our partisan uh, paradigm, then we're like, oh, no, we don't, I don't want that over there. That's too so, confusing. That's going to so, convolute everything so that, that I believe in. That's the thing is, like, some things, like, if it's, like, something that's, like, uh, dividing America, if it's an issue, sometimes it takes a little bit of research for you to understand it because it might not be in front of you, right? But, like, the people at the top who want to control your opinion, they take these issues, and instead of allowing the people who are like, hmm, I need to find out where I stand on this, let me look at what this is, they just quickly tell you what it is, and they know how to, like, make you, like, either be for it or against it based on, like, touching to your values, right? So mm-hmm. it's like if you're going to touch to, like, you know, conservatives on the, on the, on the, um, on the uh, what's it, the transgendered and how they use bathrooms, right? You're going to, like, make it, like, about religion and about, like, raping children. If you're, you know, touch on the, like, football players kneeling, you're going to make it about being against our troops. And so you do that, and then these people don't have to look into it, right? And so... Well, I think it, that, that's the most important part is that our most important point that I, I guess that I would try to make is that we need to talk and have conversations as opposed to arguments. Like, when, they, when you turn on cable news and you see two people talking, right? Three, four, five, yeah, eight, however, however many they want to stack, right? However many voices they want yelling at each other. What they're doing <laughs> is they're creating this atmosphere of divisiveness, right? And you can you can sit there and you can pick a side. I'm that guy right there. I'm that woman. <laughs> I'm that person. I, and, and the thing is, is they're not accomplishing anything. What if, like, we took Hannity and made him sit across the table every night from Rachel Maddow and there was a mediator... But they discussed these things. What if we took Hannity and and made him sit every night in a fucking corner? I know. But I'm just saying, right? Like, like the idea was that you were supposed to be able to, like, sit down and discuss. So, like, our founding fathers used to do this. Like, the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers were something that they would write about, like, you know, what's going to be the the, the values of our country, the philosophies that, you know, underwrite our democracy. And they would, like, come up with an idea based on 
a conflict of ideas, and that's kind of like what because it's about it's about the evolution of man in society, and are we constantly becoming better? And we're not anymore. I've gotten more political in the last like three years than I have in like my entire life, and I really try to kind of like kind of verbally stay out of it, but I'll post a bunch of shit about like horrible shit that's going on because I want people to be aware about it, but I don't like really I'm not educated enough to know about it. But I mean, like in the last hundred and fifty years, like the end of the Civil War. When was the last time we as a nation needed to raise our fucking arms against our government? Exactly. Like, ever. When has the government ever taken all of our guns? Right. Even, like, proposed it. This is going to sound ridiculous, but when you're speaking the truth, it's the truth. But have you, have you seen Jim Jeffries fucking stand up on gun control oh, yeah. in yeah. America? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Which they teach now at, like, Yale. Because it's pretty fucking poignant. Mm -hmm. Because... Okay, so the common argument is uh, uh, you take away all the guns, criminals are still going to get guns. Yeah. You know who's not going to have their guns taken away? The police. You cannot say that taking guns away wouldn't solve the problem when every civilized fucking first world country that's taking guns away does not have the number of mass shootings that we have. Like, statistically. Like, you just, it's fucking facts. You can't just look at that and be like, hey, they took all the guns away, criminals occasionally still get guns, Weird how they don't have mass shootings. Mm -hmm. Like, for decades. But we know this. We've been reading articles about this. I mean, it's now, you know, I started caring about stuff, you know, in, in my early 20s. You know, and now I'm in my early 30s. And I'm just realizing that the same shit I was seeing then, I'm still seeing. And we have come nowhere near close as a society to solving these problems or moving. In fact, we're getting more torn on them. It's, been it's very disheartening. It's been interesting because, like, I grew up, my, my grandparents adopted me when I was, like, five. And they were born in the 20s mm -hmm. and lived through the Depression. Both the roaring world, 20s. Yeah. Uh, lived through the Depression, the end of the first, well, yeah, the end of the First World War, the Second World War, you know, Korea, Vietnam, all that stuff. Uh, and my grandparents were pretty progressive for being born in that period of time. Like, they weren't, they weren't racist, they weren't homophobic or anything like that. Um, they were, they watched Fox News too much, but they were like, they were, they were the most compassionate, generous people that I've ever met to everybody that crossed their paths, right? And so they pass away and I'm growing up as a young man in my early 20s and I'm watching like the gradual legalization or legalization of marijuana. And I realize, oh shit, they lived through when the prohibition happened, right? And I'm like, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm living through like the legalization of gay marriage and I'm growing, I'm living through like the first uh, black president and all that stuff. And I was like, hey, we're getting really progressive. Dude, we really did do some... And then it's like fucking snowballing backwards. And I'm just like, what is going on? Like, I've never the seen... The pendulum a is fucking, very yeah. hard these days. Dude, well, and, well women's rights in general have not really, like... I mean, that shit is going out of control, like, in, in, in a bad way. Social revolution based on, like, what was traditionally the norms for all of, like, civilized humanity has been, like, the past, like, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what? The last country to kill slavery was Brazil in, like, 1888. So we're just a little over 100 years from just ending the concept of slavery from, like, a national policy, right? We're destructing norms of society that have lasted thousands of years. Right. So we're actually moving pretty fast. We just see it from the perspective of, you know... When we are present, you don't really have the... Uh the ability of, of hindsight, the perspective that comes with hindsight, which is always nice. Like if we look back at say, you know, and, and we put Martin Luther King on a pedestal, which we absolutely should. We look back and we're like, how could everyone not believe in those speeches? Our focus should be less on like making technological advancement and more on fucking societal advancement. Like that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that just, you know, does that make sense? Like it's so fucking bullshit that we're just like, hey, women still shouldn't have control over their own bodies because it's not the Christian way. I have a very strong opinions on it because I grew up in a very religious household. I'm not religious, but I grew up in like, I was a deacon in my church. My grandmother was like the epitome of the What's Christian idea. It's like the guy that counts the tithe and gets people the fuck out of the church. Uh, so, um, you were a good one. Yeah, I was, yeah. I grew up in a, a religious household. My grandmother uh, helps uh, found the Seventh-day Adventist church up here, actually. And so um, when I was adopted, when I was five, she would take me up there. And from the time that I was like five until I was about 14, 15, when I started having questions that my pastor couldn't answer, uh, I was what were those heavily involved. 
What happened to the dinosaurs was one. Do you want to know? Honestly, genuinely, this is the weirdest fucking answer I've ever gotten out of a religious person. Was that he was convinced that it was the uh, um, the experiments that went against the will of God that created the dinosaurs. Genetic m modification in biblical times that created these monstrous beings that we've since found the fossils of. That was his, he's like, yeah, the flood killed him because they're abominations. That was, I swear to God, that's what he told me. So, one last question that, uh, one last, like, I guess, thing that I, I'd like to talk about. If you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to. Of course I will. Um, so I love your, talking about things that I hate. So, your, uh, your stepdad owned the showboat. Yes. Okay. I'm open about my family. Okay. Yeah. You know, he, he passed recently, away. Yeah, he recently passed away, yeah. yeah. That was rough, because I was in Belize. I was 6,000 miles away from my family. Yeah, I saw that. So, real quick, let's go back a little bit, because uh, Susan Buchanan was the former editor of the Anchorage Press. She did years ago a piece on Terry called Santa Wears a Black Hat, where she went up to my stepdad's house up on the hill, up on Bertie Warner, and interviewed him. And uh, the thing about my stepdad was that he was a very generous guy occasionally. So every Christmas, he would donate thousands of dollars worth of toys and stuff to uh, one of the one of the uh, charitable groups around town. So kids that didn't have a lot of stuff, he'd donate $1,000 worth of toys at them. This has gone on for years. I mean, it used to happen in his old strip club and stuff like that. Um, when she interviewed him, it wasn't – it was past that time, but – uh, but he's also, he's like a really aggressive guy and she did a really, really poignant, objective character profile of him and like on, on his temper and everything like that. And I appreciated it because it really illustrated how gray of a character he was. And it influenced me years later. I mean, I, he used to have that article framed up on in his den, in his private, in his office actually, that he had turned like this massive garage extension into. How, how old were you when, when this came out? Oh, man, I don't know. 13, 14. I was in my teens, early, early teens. Did it take a while like for you to look back on it and be like, to have... The, no, I'd had it in my head for a long time, but I didn't have, have a... Now. No, I've always had... She didn't influence my opinion. I grew up, I grew up, in, his, I grew up in his like, you know, perspective or whatever. I, I had had this opinion of him for a long time, um, but I wasn't necessarily a writer at the time. So I had read this and it it uh, influenced me, but I didn't like really think uh, like it, it stuck in my head. And it wasn't until I started keeping a blog, I started writing um, extracurricularly. I wasn't really writing professionally. I was mostly writing for myself. I had written my books by that point, my first three books, but I'd self-published them because no publisher was going to pick them up because I didn't know how to even approach that. Um, so I wasn't a professional writer. I was just a guy that liked to write and needed to get things out. And so I was like keeping a blog and in my blog, I was not only promoting my own work, but I was doing a lot of things that were important to me. And, um, eventually it got to the point where I like my set that hadn't been very close with me for a while. And I wrote a piece also titled Santa wears a black hat that was influenced by that piece. And I quoted that piece and I, I, uh, I tried to credit that piece and I wrote about my own experience um, as someone that grew up with him, as opposed to Susie, who was a journalist that went and spent an afternoon with him. And Susie happened to find it uh, a couple of years later, when I was, it was a few years ago. And she was really impressed by it. So she asked me, at that point, she was the editor of the press. She asked me if I would do a couple pieces for the her. The Anchorage Press. The Anchorage Press, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Anchorage Press. And so she asked me to do a couple pieces for her. We met at a tea place. I'm not a tea guy, but it was all right. Indigo Tea Lounge. Indigo Tea Lounge. Yeah. That's right. So we had a good meeting. And she asked me if I would do a piece. And I said, I don't know what you want me to do a piece on. She recommended I do a piece on the Downtown Transit Center. That's my ex that was my first foray into sort of freelance uh, amateur journalism. Amateur because I was an amateur. Um, but in my opinion, it was not amateur journalism. Well, I appreciate that. So to bring it full circle is like I, I started working with you because Susie turned me on. I've known you for I knew you way before I knew Susie, but uh, but I got working with you because Susie recommended to you, and I got working with Susie because Susie did an article on my stepdad. And that's the thing, and I wrote an article on my stepdad. It was uh, very personal because of that. So what happened was um, my mom divorced 
the guy that she was married to who adopted me when I was young, like a year and a half. But uh, she started working as a dancer. Terry had... Uh, Where was she a dancer? At the show book. Okay. So Terry had, when he was younger uh, in Seattle, where he's like in Washington where he's from, he had um, robbed a pharmacy uh, with, a, I think, an unloaded gun or something like that. But he got sentenced to prison time. And so he, like, went to prison. He escaped from prison, got rearrested out of prison. That story. Has he ever told you about how he escaped? Turns out that he had fucking, there was a riot that had broken out. And Terry and this other guy had um, managed to get into different clothing. And they left out, they basically left out the front doors. And they were going down the sidewalk. And an off-duty cop who had arrested the guy that my stepdad was with recognized the guy that he arrested and snaked them both back up. So they almost got away. They almost got away. And it was only through my stepdad's accomplice that like... What a rush. Yeah. <laughs> so they... Anyway, so he uh, he eventually moved up back to Alaska. He started uh, he started the Showboat Show Club with uh, uh, my godfather, who's since passed. And um, it became like the biggest strip club in Anchorage. This is before, well, this is before the bush. Um, what, so what year did he start it? Like the set is in the seventies. Yeah. Okay. Good, to good time. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know where the peanut farm is? Oh yeah. You know the peanut farm. Yeah. Used to take me yeah. There all the time. You know the peanut farm sports extension? Yep. That was the showboat. Okay. Yeah. They they bulldozed it and rebuilt the sports extension on it. Okay. There was a huge lawsuit about it. Actually, Terry was trying to protest it and it didn't go through. Um, he had a club there. He had a club up in Fairbanks, which I stayed at yeah, a couple the times. Yeah, the showboat. I grew up in yeah. Fairbanks, so I remember that. It yeah. just burnt down. Yeah. Well, good. So, <laughs> no, my stepdad was good. He was, um, I mean, like, it was, it was a weird thing because he married, he married my mom. My mom was a dancer for him. And, um, and then they had, like, my half-brother. And I grew up uh, mostly with my grandparents who adopted me when I was, like, five. Because yeah, it's probably pretty hard to live with a dancer as a mom. I mean, I'm just saying, it's like, if you're a dancer, I think that's to be a mom, is it? I don't know. No, it's not. It's I not. Think, no, I think it's kind of a shitty, I mean, to be honest, I think it's kind of a shitty thing to say. Is it? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I don't no, I'm know. A, I'm a thousand percent behind dancers and sex workers and single moms. A hundred percent. I know a lot of strippers that are, that are moms that do good jobs okay. and they bring in a shitload of money. So, oh, nice. And they're good, they're good moms. Okay. I yeah. Don't, yeah. A hundred percent. I didn't know what yeah. the lifestyles like, you know. Well, no, it, no, no, it's di- and it's a difficult. And I don't, lifestyle. I don't, I don't, I don't mean that like what they're doing is bad. I just mean that I know it's late. And no, I understand. No, I no, a hundred percent. I understand. No, it's a, it's no, it's a difficult lifestyle. It's a difficult lifestyle to uh, raise a kid. It's a difficult lifestyle to even date because it takes a certain mindset to date a stripper. It's really hard. What I've always thought of uh, <clears throat> dancers and. Um, strippers in Alaska is is very akin to slopers. Like, if you were to look at the opposite side of the spectrum... The like fucking men, money you make. Yeah, the money you make. And, but but I think, I guess to defend you a little bit, because I, I think I know where you're coming from, is the person that is preoccupied, be it the sloper or the stripper... Sure. Not saying they're, they're the similar, but in this situation that we're talking about similar, um, they become absent. Because of work, sure, and I think that that's probably probably what you're getting at. Well, what I would say, I guess, is like there's probably there's probably well, there's some who are like like, like they date men who probably are not good for their lifestyle, and they do too much like drugs and boozing. But then there's probably the the ones who like I'm here to make money for my kids. Well, I've seen Show every no, I've seen and they leave. I've seen every aspect of it. Yeah, exactly. Getting on stage and being vulnerable is difficult, and having a lot of people objectify you is difficult. So of course there's there are drugs and alcohol involved in that, of course, of course. Well, and also like on the like, you know, there's the there's people that are intimidated by the sexual the sexual aspect of it. They're like, well, if she's being sexual, then I'm like, there's an insecurity aspect to it. There's a whole like lot of to things, who? but to both people, to both sides. Like, what do you mean, like the kid and the? Well, no, I mean not the kid, but I mean like yeah. if you're dating a dancer, of course you're gonna be insecure that you're like, oh, okay, well she's going out yeah. and she's like, so it's like that's difficult. You have to have faith in the integrity of, of the woman, and the woman often has that integrity. It's just the man that's, like, weaker in their resolve. Yeah. Um, there's also the insecurity in the woman because, like, to be to, – to expose yourself like that is difficult, too. Like, it takes a lot of, like, vulnerability and a lot of, like, to put yourself out there in a situation where you can be easily exploited and taken advantage of and, and degraded. Men don't treat women well. 
I grew up with that as like my stepdad and I, I respect a lot of aspects of him. One of the things that I don't is that he owned a dance, he owns a strip clubs and he would regu- regularly degrade or he would just, he would just say shit to women and he, and it wasn't, I don't even think like half of it was like his sexism. They, well, I mean like, no, an object to well, him. It was a commodity almost, a commodity, which yes. was also horrible, horrible. And the other thing was, is just like, he was also just a, um, he was a guy that was locked up in prison at a young age. And so when he got out and he got some measure of control, it was always like, I have this measure of power. So I have this idea of business. And if it doesn't follow that idea of business, then I don't need it in my life. So you either follow my instructions or you don't. But a, a huge problem with that too, is because of like, just the environment that he grew up in. And also a lot of stuff like he just had this ingrained sexism and misogyny that was was horrible. So I grew up with like that on one side and my grandmother, who was like the sweetest Christian woman ever. So I was like I saw like the the epitome of how you're supposed to treat people and then also like the worst way that you could treat a fucking woman. But Terry also had like a lot of complexity to him. He was like, he was generous. He would, he would donate to people that got hurt. He would donate to women's shelters. He would donate to homeless shelters. He would donate to kids. He would donate like, to all this stuff. What would you say is like the ultimate gray area? No, he's a, he's a complex. Yeah. He's per, yeah. I mean like when I was, um, uh, uh, 15, 16 years old. So 15 years old, I was, it was Valentine's day. My mother told me, she called me up. She wished me a happy Valentine's day. I was having a shitty day. She was like, I got something to tell you. Um, and Terry was my stepdad, by the way. He's not like the guy that I thought was my dad. And she goes, I got something to tell you. I don't know how to tell you. And I was like, well, you can't just say that. And then just hang up. You got to tell me. And she goes, well, um, uh, Rick's not your dad. And I go, well, who the fuck is? How old were you? I was like 15. Yeah, I just lost. I was actually 15 because I just lost my virginity. I remember that specifically. But uh, uh, she goes, uh, his name's John. He was like a marine biologist or whatever. I was like, okay, well, I got to get off the phone, whatever. And it like kind of affected things. And then like it kind of filtered through my family. I was like, as I'm finding this out. And I was like, I wasn't really mad. I was just kind of like my whole world had been turned upside down. Like my dad was not my dad. The grandparents that raised me since I was five were not related to me by blood. They just took me as an obligation, which wow. was crazy. Right? No, that that was heavy for me. Because they had raised like three adults before they ever got to me. And now they're raising a fourth adult. I didn't get the grandparents treatment. I got like parents that had already raised three kids and were now like in their elderly years. So my stepdad thought that I was, you know, six, 15, 16 years old. He's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, and he's a hard man. He's a hard man. He went through prison. He went through all this stuff, right? So I got uh, suspended from school from mouthing off to a teacher. More dumb shit. Anyway, so I, I'm going up to my stepdad's place to spend uh, the night with my half brother and my young, young sister. And uh, I'm in my stepdad's room, his bedroom. And I'm listening to him just talk. Tra- like he's, he's trying to get these girls up from like Seattle or something to dance at the club. And he's, he's calling them cunts. He's calling them, you know, all these horrible, horrible things. And, uh, and then he gets up the phone and he's talking to me and he finds that like, we just get into a conversation. I just happened to mention like, oh, I don't need to go back because I got suspended. And he's like, what'd you get suspended for? It's like, oh, I just kind of mouthed off to like my teacher. And he's like, you mouth off to a woman? That is kind of the thing, right? Like he's got his own mindset. So he like, he goes off on me about mouthing off to a woman and uh, how I'm a piece of shit. How I'm not a man for talking trash to a woman. And I go downstairs to my brother's room and I'm pacing back and forth. I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry. And I walk back up and I confront him in his room. And I say, how fucking dare you? Like, you can't tell me not to mouth off to a woman when I just listen to you talk shit about women the whole time. All this stuff. You're not going to treat me like I'm, I'm not one of your fucking workers that you can just degrade and talk shit about and intimidate and diminish and everything like that. I'm your fucking stepson. Like, I'm your son. And uh, uh, he, I, I approached him a little bit, and then he approached me right back because he's been to prison. Things are heating up. Yeah, and so he gets like in my face, and I go to I go to like uh, put my hands up to defend myself, and my my fingertips brush his chest. Oh, was, no. I immediately see him snap into like a prison fight stance. It was obscene, right? I'm like I think I'm like maybe 16, and he uh, um, drops in this prison fight. Does he put your fucking hands on me? 
And I was like, well, I, no, I just, I was just not, no, no, that's not what I meant. And he's like, now he's like advancing and he's got his thing. And I put my hands up uh, to defend myself because uh, I think he's going to swing on me. But he pulls a prison move and he just heads me right in the fucking nose. Breaks my nose. And I slam into the nightstand. I hit the wall and uh, I bounce back off and I go, I'm out of here. And um, I open the door and my younger brother's right there. And I was like, "How old's your younger brother?" I w- uh, he must have been eleven or twelve. And I was like, "I'm okay. Like, just go downstairs. Everything's fine." So I walk upstairs, and I'm like, "I call a cab." And we're up on Hillside, and because we're up on Hillside, the cab's gonna take fucking forever. I'm <laughs> just kind of where what's going on. And uh, um, I'm leaning against the door frame, and he leans against the other door frame, and I just like I'm just staring at him, and he's just explaining to me about how like you know I'm just got I got this you know I'm upset because I found out that I was adopted, and all this stuff, and I was getting too aggressive, and he's just kind of justify like what just happened and all this stuff, and um, so I just let him talk, man, and he's just like he's just trying to explain like what he did was for my own good. And, uh, but you're not feeding into it at the time. Well, I mean, it, it wasn't a what I mean, like, I'm not saying headbutt your kids. I mean, like, I learned, I learned valuable lessons from that. I mean, it taught me just not the way that you should teach people. Uh, the cab comes up and he pulls out 200 bucks. And at 16 years old, I just moved. Yeah, I was 16. I just moved out into an apartment with a bunch of older people. I wasn't making a lot of money. So, I, like, my part of the rent, that was a lot of money. And he goes, uh, you can, you can take this money and just tell the cab to go out and you can keep the money. Take uh, the money, take the cab, go get a burger, get something to eat, and come back. Uh, you can take the cab and go home and just keep whatever you want. In that moment, did you think, and I know you're young, but did you think that maybe he was treating you yeah. like one of those girls? Right. Well, and that's and that's uh, that's why I took the money and I handed it right back to him and I said, I don't need your fucking money. And I paid for the cab right out of my own hand. And that was the first moment that Terry respected me as a man. He told me, he sent me a bouquet of flowers. I sent him back too. And I was like, you know, he's like, I, you know, I didn't realize, you know, cause he, he paid a lot of stuff off. I found out a few years later that my mom, when he was married to my mom, some guy was hitting on her and she was hitting on him back while they were married. And he hired somebody to break his fucking legs and put him in the hospital. And, uh, and then he went and visited him in the hospital and paid all of his hospital bills. Cause it was the principal. So do you think that you saw this life and you ran away from it? Or do you think that you ever, did you ever see this life as attractive? Like this is, this was meant for me because it's to a degree, it's like a family business. And if you would have like looked up to him and been like, you're the shit, I want to do this. You probably could have. Right. But you didn't. You're no, I wanted, to, you're I wanted to run the club. You did want to run the club. Uh, but that's not, I mean, I don't think the shadiness was part of it. You know, like he, Terry's not, I don't think he's an inherently violent person. I think he's a person that wants to make points. I mean, he ran with like the Hells Angels. He ran with like a bunch of other stuff. The guy was like, uh, um, you know how like some people are genetically disposed to be able to survive things that other people can't. Sure. This dude used to be able to do the level of drugs that would kill a normal person three you, times a day. You, you, you but, react to your situation. Right. But here's the thing too, is like everything that I've said paints him in a certain kind of light so far. What I will say is that, like, he he blew a lot of money when he was hooked and when he was clean. I've never seen anybody make millions of dollars faster. Like, I was a savvy fucking businessman. He was uh, he was intelligent. He knew how to market people. He knew how to market everything like that. He had his demons. And he rocked back and forth that my whole life. And, I mean, like, and it came down from where he came from. I mean, like, he was in and out of prison. He did all this different stuff. He's one of the most infamous anchorage people that's been around um he also taught me some of the best fucking lessons that i've ever had in my life about generosity and family and loyalty and what not to do and how appropriately and inappropriately to react to things i mean like the guy was i mean he's not you can't just paint him as a villain i mean when i when he passed away i had 20 fucking people Ranged from, like, people my age that just interacted with him to people that were, like, 10, 20, 30 years older than me that, like, he helped out when they were at their fucking wit's end and brought them up, like, out of the slums, out of, like, the shitty, shittiest fucking things. He never prostituted anybody. 
Like he, you know, he ran a he ran a club that did good business, and he ran people that fucking you know he knew what he was doing. He might not have used the best language. He was he was a very abrasive, aggressive. This is how I want things to go, kind of person. But like, uh, he, I mean, he, he was my dad. He was my dad, and he died. So, how is that lifestyle affecting you now? My family situation is so complicated that it extends far past Terry. I would just say that, like, every person in my life, every every family member in my life, with my very complicated parentage and adoption situation oh, yeah, yeah. has affected me in a lot of ways. Um, I think that... Uh, uh, I, I guess the, the, what I'm asking is that, like, no matter what, your childhood and where you came from is going to be a weight on you as you try and go forward because it's, it is to me, it probably is to you. It's just how it works naturally, right? But sometimes that weight can be heavier because of what you had to experience. And in your case, you might have had to experience a heavier weight than most people. So the question is, can you make that weight less heavy? You know, is there, is there like a point where you have to be like, hey, I've got to figure out a way to have this like weight float with me as I try and go forward? Do you know what I mean? That's an interesting question just because uh, the first – so I just recently moved down to Belize for three and a half months. And when I first moved down there, the first two and a half weeks I had to spend in Belize City and it wasn't a great experience. And when I first got down there, it was uh, – I had pneumonia-level bronchitis. Belize City, there's nothing to do in Belize City. So it's a lot of dilapidated cities or uh, dilapidated buildings. The people there like either want to book you for a trip or be your taxi driver. Or they hate you. Just saying. In yeah. Belize City. not That's not, not Belize in general. Um, and uh, the place that I was living was like a third story of a hotel with a shared bathroom with a sloped ceiling with like turquoise walls with one dim lit bulb. So it was kind of a miserable thing. And I went through like the worst suicidal depression that I've ever been through. Okay. So I get through that. I moved down to a very nice, well-lit, very friendly, beautiful, on the beach, on the ocean village. And my stepfather passes away. He's like a dad to me. And I'm 6,000 miles away from, yeah, Terry. I'm 6,000 miles away from my half-brother and the rest of my family. I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do because I had gone down there to spend time for my own reflection and everything like that. Now I've got this grieving thing to do and I'm not typically good at grieving. So is the experience of losing family members and everything that they taught you uh, changing? Sure. But I'm a writer also. Like that's what, like I like to think so. I haven't written anything in a while, but I mean like that's my goal is to write things from like my own experience. You're a writer. And my pain. Thanks. You have books, you're a writer. No, 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 not even that. Not even that. If you have an idea, and then the next thing that you think of, the only thing that you can do in that moment is grab a writing utensil and scroll it down on a piece of paper, you are a fucking writer. And then, but, but, but if it's like psychological, like it, it's probably even diagnosable. The fact that you can't do anything in that moment, you can't even listen to the person across from you. Say you're on a fucking date. Right, and then like all of a sudden, you, it hits you with an idea because of the conversation you're in, and all of a sudden you're like, "Oh, oh shit, that would make a really good story." I have to write this down. You are a writer, and that that's that's starting from the ground level. That's not even like writing books, writing articles. You know that that, that those are the next steps. So what, if you are if you are at that point, you're a writer. But if you're beyond, you are absolutely a writer. I appreciate that. There are so many great people out there that have great ideas that can cogently put them into great ways that mean things to other people. So I had talked about uh, storytelling, reaching people that have like either have experienced things to let them know that they weren't alone or that didn't experience that. But it's like I can't, I can't define myself by what I can't define myself by the by my progenitors. I can't define myself by like, you know, my father's or my mother's or whatever. Cause I've had several of both. Like I have to be, I have to take the, um, the parts of them that make the most sense to me. My grandmother was the most forgiving, loving person 
compassionate, generous person that could ever be. And she, she, because she was super religious, they hold religious people to a very high standard because they, they're hypocritical most of the time. And she never was, which is astonishing to me. That's the thing. I was very fortunate to witness someone that like never backed down on their Christian values, but like was like lived the Christian ideal, like forgive everyone, let God do the judging. Yeah, she was like a real Christian. Right. Precisely. And so I, I was, like I said, when I was a deacon in the church, like I, I held people to a very high fucking standard and they didn't live up to it. And then I look at like the darker parts of like my stepdad stuff. And I was just like, I understand. Here's the thing is like when you grow up in that situation, you start to understand why people dance. You understand why people get engaged in like what pe- some people would consider seedier activities or like illicit activities. And I was like, I get it. Like, I understand that. And I understand why these women are strong and I understand why they're doing it. And for like the important reasons that they're doing it and like, you know, the benefits that they're doing it and the strength that they're coming from in order to do it. And so I'm somewhere in the middle where I just have a lot of fucking anger issues and I like to believe in like the good parts of people and I like to be forgiving. And I um, also like that, like, I think that lying is the most despicable thing ever. So I just try to be as transparent in my own life and hope that it can help some people, even at the detriment to their perspective of me. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by Cody Liska and Dustin H. James for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats.